1: Hello, everyone. This is Ryan Tripp. I've returned to the Native American Studies channel for the New Books Network. Today, we have Assistant Professor of History at Utah State University, Seth Archer. He's here with us today to discuss his new book, Sharks Upon the Land, Colonialism, Indigenous Health, and Culture in Hawaii, 1778 to 1855. Welcome, uh, Professor Archer. Thanks. Great to be here. Um, just wanted to note he was also previously a uh, postdoc at Cambridge. Um, so your new book is uh, published um, this year by uh, Cambridge University Press. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, the cover, the striking cover of this man and this woman on your book?
0: Sure. Uh, this is an image I found in the archives in the Honolulu Museum of Art. Um, many many illustrations by this French artist uh, Jacques Arago uh, have been published in the past, but not this one. And that's why I was so excited when I came across it. It shows a man facing a woman and the woman holds a toddler to her breast. The man is wearing a um, British Navy um, coat uh, with, with tails on it. We assu- I assume it's British Navy, a coat that's been traded to him. It's pretty tattered. It has the elbow ripped out and shows lots of signs of wear. And on the, on the lower half of his body, he's wearing the traditional uh, Hawaiian garment, uh, the malo, which um, essentially looks like a, a G-string. On his legs, cover, his legs are covered by tattoos. Many of them are traditional, but there's one that probably most people who look at this won't see, but I hope some will on his right thigh, um, oriented, um, up and down is a rifle with a bayonet. And that is a trade item that, um, was new to Hawaii after 1778 and which had, uh, an incredible impact weapons, um, on, on Hawaiian society. So it's a, it's a sign of the importance of that weapon to him. As for the woman, um, she's holding a toddler, as I mentioned, and, Fertility is a central theme of this book, and uh, difficulties um, with uh, with growing with with families uh, uh, and with reproduction uh, because of the health struggles of the Hawaiian people. And so, I speculate in the conclusion of this book: um, was this child hers? Was was the child adopted? Which is a um, a really important cultural. Uh, tradition in Polynesian societies, including Hawaiian society, um, close family adoption. Um, But it's also, the the image is also chosen to illustrate that despite an incredibly grim story in this book, Hawaiian people do recover. Um, Their society does thrive uh, after this story, Um, just against all the odds, really. The Hawaiian population recovers and Hawaiian culture Um, experiences a great renaissance in the 20th century. So it's a little bit of uh, hope there on the cover. And as I say, in what is otherwise a pretty grim story.
1: So why title your book sharks upon the land? How does the study push the field of native health history, according to you beyond epidemiology and demography into the realm of indigenous cultural responses to changing health conditions? Also, if possible, can you comment on the uh, wonderful appendices at the end of the book? Sure.
0: Uh, The title, um, Hawaiians traditionally had a term for their chiefs. Hawaiian society uh, before the arrival of Europeans was strictly hierarchical, which some um, scholars of scholars who know native North America better are sometimes surprised uh, about the strict class hierarchy, but Um, it was hierarchical and the common Hawaiians referred to their chiefs. They had a term for, for them, which was, which was the shark who, who travels on land. And what they meant by that essentially was that, uh, the chief would travel from district to district, island to island, to island in some cases, and essentially co-opt, um, the native agricultural productions, um, and not only tax the people, but, but, um, uh, as I say, co-opt, co-opt, their 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 labor and um, their production. So it was as if uh, the chief was a shark just coming on the land and devouring uh, devouring the uh, the crops and the the produce that the people had had labored over. So I use it as a metaphor uh, in this book that, um, like those ravenous chiefs who traveled uh, around the land, colonialism and the epidemiological and other incursions were like sharks as well, uh, upon the land. Um, and I also wanted to call up the class dimension that remains an important f- uh, feature of, um, Hawaiian society in the midst of colonialism, um, that the impact on the common people, um, is disproportionate, um, uh, and distinct from from that of the of the chiefs, the, the impact of colonialism, and the class dimension really never goes away. Uh, at least throughout throughout the period I'm studying. You- um, as for, the, as for the, the the quotation that you mentioned, yeah, I wanted this study to um, push beyond the epidemiological and demographic discussions in indigenous history. And what I I mean by that essentially is from uh, Alfred Crosby, the environmental historian Alfred Crosby, on through really the early 2000s, most of the the discussion about native health, uh, I'm thinking especially about North America and the Americas, has been about um, percentages, uh, population loss, and the diseases that struck. So essentially, we're going to we're going to talk about smallpox or measles. We're going to chronicle the uh, rate of depopulation. So a lot of demographers were doing this work, geographers, envir- environmental historians. What I saw very little of when I began began to research in this field was the cultural dimensions of that impact. So when a society um, or community, community loses 90% of its population, which unfortunately did happen in among many indigenous communities, what does that mean culturally or socially? Um, how does that affect religion? How does that affect gender relations? How does that affect um, trade and labor? So essentially, I was interested in the social and cultural dimensions of health struggles and of the disease impact uh, in, in Native societies. And... I chose Hawaii for uh, a number of reasons. Um, probably the most important was the, um, was the source base, the very rich documentary record and oral traditions uh, that, that, that had been preserved uh, in Hawaii. And then just lastly on the, on the appendices, there are four appendices in the book. Um, one is just a glossary of Hawaiian terms. The second is a list of uh, selected persons who appear in the book, because for many readers, most readers, I would say, Hawaiian names are really difficult. Um, And then finally, uh, I have a a pretty extensive population table because the demographic story is an important story. And so I I did my best to compile the statistics on uh, every island and the overall Hawaiian population, the non-Hawaiian population, the part Hawaiian population over the course of a century from the 1770s to the 1870s. Finally, uh, and it's actually the first appendix I worked on. I have a, an appendix of Hawaiian terms for venereal disease. And uh, this is sexually entra- sexually transmitted infections, as we call them today. Um, I noticed really early on in my research, um, and, and at the same time that I was trying to learn to read Hawaiian, I noticed that there were a huge number of terms for sexually transmitted infections. And I thought compiling a list might be revealing. Um, and in fact... The, the language itself is revealing. There are social class dimensions to some of these terms, um, as well as abundant evidence of the effect of venereal disease on uh, newborns uh, and children. So I, I, I couldn't have told, I couldn't have uh, discussed this, th- these subjects without the Hawaiian language itself. And so I have this extensive um, appendix with all the terms and the variants and their translations.
1: If possible, please elaborate on your source base, as was your admission that while, quote, while mindful of the warnings of post-structuralism and post-colonialism, I am less skeptical than some scholars about the ability of foreign observers and languages to illuminate developments in native society.
0: Sure. Uh, I've already suggested that the Hawaiian language has um, rich uh, sources for this study and as and as it does for any study on, on Hawaii uh, and Hawaiian history, uh, Hawaiian language sources um, really they 're a unique documentary trove, um, possibly unparalleled by any indigenous people globally in the nineteenth century, certainly um, in the american sphere uh, i don 't know of any uh, indigenous language source base quite as rich. And there are various reasons for this i I don't, I don't think I've time to go into them, but um, they were um, extremely important to the study and most people working in Hawaiian history now um, do use these sources and, and make the uh, make the effort to um, to learn the language, which is really really important but a lot depends on the questions being asked in terms of what sources um, a scholar uses and the questions I was asking really did require the use of foreign documents. Um, and the foreigners who visit Hawaii in this period are from all over the world. And um, it's, it's pretty shocking, actually. There are British, American, French, Spanish, Russian, German, Baltic German, Mexican, and Tahitian writers, all of whom record their experiences and observations on the Hawaiian islands. And my gut feeling while, while starting this research was that the broadest possible source base would enable me to tell the most complete story. Um, And, and I hope that's, that's been the case, but let me just add that there's so much more in the Hawaiian language documents to be researched, to be explored. Um, And so By no means did I exhaust what was there in the Hawaiian language sources. Um, I just tried to get um, a cross section of of observers um, of of Hawaiian health and colonialism in this period. Um, And then finally, yeah, in terms of the um, skepticism about foreign observers and languages, um, what I found when I started reading sources from multiple nations and, um, and translated documents from the Russian and, um, and French and German was that these people, Europeans, mostly Europeans were not of one mind. They were never of one mind and their disagreements were illuminating. Um, I was also able to triangulate, um, certain, uh, social and cultural effects on the Hawaiian islands and just plain epidemiological information because I would see it in multiple sources. Um, and in many cases, I was surprised how many cases, uh, these are the only documents that are out there that would illuminate something like the introduction of syphilis or the, um, plummeting fertility rate in the early 19th century. There, the oral traditions, uh, of course, they're, they're out there, they exist, but um, they, they don't illuminate the way these foreign observers do, um, the, finer, the finer details, um, the finer points of, of some of these effects. So I was really grateful to have, have the broad source base.
1: Can you briefly elaborate on diseases endemic to the islands prior to 1778 and possible reasons for shortened lifespans?
0: Well, life was shorter everywhere in the 18th century, Europe, Asia, uh, as it was in the Pacific. Um, but the significant point here is that in Hawaii, there were few uh, of what we call acute infectious diseases. So measles, smallpox, uh, the sexually transmitted infections, whooping cough, influenza. These diseases did not, um, as far as we can tell, did not afflict. Hawaiians before 1778. The diseases they did have were chronic uh, inflammatory conditions, um, tooth decay, birth defects, complications in childbirth uh, for women. And then archaeologists speculate about zoonotic diseases. In other words, diseases that uh, spread from um, livestock. But there's a key difference here as well, because Hawaii did not have cows or goats or sheep. There were pigs and chickens and dogs. And so there's some some work uh, trying to sort out uh, where, where human diseases spread from, from, from these livestock. But again, the key is that the acute infectious diseases were not present before Europeans arrived.
1: Why did Hawaiian women engage in sexual intercourse for pleasure or otherwise with Captain James Cook's sailors?
0: This is a fraught subject. Um, Hawaiian women uh, and some girls uh, did engage in sexual intercourse with Captain Cook's men when they arrived in 1778. And this began a story or a a rhetoric in in Western cultures, European and American society, about Pacific Islanders as sensual and exotic. We can see this clear through Paul Gauguin, his art, uh, his his painting, um, and Robert Louis Stevenson. um, And and frankly, all the way through the 20th century with the uh, spread of hula culture. Um, But what I found actually is that sexual mores were quite varied around the Pacific. Some societies were very reticent um, to engage in sexual exchanges with newcomers. Um, most of these newcomers are Europeans and other societies were, were less reticent. Hawaii in 1778 fits the latter description. And the reasons um, for sexual exchange are really complicated. Uh, there I, I go on quite at length about this and the, the scholarship before me has as well. Um, but let me just mention a few factors that are, are important and relevant here. Um, in these early exchanges between European uh, sailors and uh, Hawaiians, um, there was some coercion, um, coercion frequently by um, Hawaiian kin kinspeople of, of the women who were engaging in sexual exchange, and sometimes by um, European sailors, and um, It wasn't at the at the start, it wasn't a sex trade or prostitution. It was more of an exchange. Um, So women were getting um, very useful uh, tools, iron tools, uh, looking glasses, uh, textiles, clothing, um, luxury items as well, jewelry and and that sort of thing. Um, uh, So there was a motivation there. But really, the most significant motivation for um, women to in, engage in, in sexual exchange with, with the newcomers, um, uh, I'm following other scholars here, was this the sense they had of the newcomer's mana, and mana is just the uh, Hawaiian term for spiritual power, that the newcomer's technology, uh, language, um, ex- general exoticism suggested to Hawaiians that These people were um, interesting, special in some way, that they had certain powers, um, and Hawaiians were interested in investigating that that power, that mana, and um, there's plenty of evidence that Hawaiian women and girls um, thought that um, engaging um, in sexual relations with these men would give them access to that power, possibly increase their status in Hawaiian society, um, the anthropological term is hypergamy, in other words, marrying up, uh, increasing your status through uh, through connection to a higher status person. Um, and so it took, um, as, I, as I describe in the book, it took a little bit of exploration, um, including spending a lot of time on the ships and trying to get to know these people, these men. They were all men, these newcomers. And part of that exploration and experimentation is, um, for better or worse, involved sex. The reason it's so important for this book is that the first major diseases um, that strike Hawaii are sexually transmitted diseases. So the actual, for lack of a better term, the actual volume of sexual exchange that occurs um, early on in Hawaii affects Hawaiian health over the long term.
1: So... I guess on that note, what diseases specifically resulted from this sexual exchange among these vulnerable Hawaiians? And how, in turn, did this exchange situate, and you're very careful to argue, not cause, but situate the violent crucible that precipitated the killing of uh, Captain Cook in 1779?
0: Yeah, and let me just explain that term, vulnerable, which, uh, yeah, which you put in, in quotes there, and, and for good reason. Um, it's, it's a loaded term. But in terms of the actual diseases that strike, which are gonorrhea, venereal syphilis, and tuberculosis, um, the Hawaiian people were vulnerable because those diseases um, were not present on the islands before 1778. And because they were not present, uh, these acute infectious diseases have a way of uh, being especially virulent when they're new among a population. So they struck with uh, with, uh, incredible force. So gonorrhea and syphilis are both, um, bacterial diseases, um, uh, spread through, um, intercourse, sexual intercourse, tuberculosis, which was the leading killer, um, worldwide in the 19th century is spread through, um, is spread through the air. So through, um, the breath and, um, um, sneezing, coughing, that kind of thing we, we know, um, Pretty certainly, uh, well, I should just say certainly uh, that that Captain Cook's men spread both gonorrhea and syphilis in 1778, and we know that because they they stay for just a few weeks um, on the first voyage in, in early in January 1778. They return in November of that same year, and before they even come to shore um, on any island, Hawaiians come up to them on canoes and show them that they've been infected with uh, venereal, uh, with sexually transmitted infections, both gonorrhea and syphilis. Um, and Captain Cook and his men write extensively about this. There are eight, eight published accounts and, uh, possibly more unpublished accounts by Cook's men. We, we have the names of sailors who violated Captain Cook's orders to, um, stay away from native women, Hawaiian women. Um, there were punishments uh, dealt out on on the deck of the ship for men who um slept with hawaiian women while being infected with these diseases they actually the accounts um, the cook uh, accounts actually described this so it's um it's as conclusive as it possibly could be that captain cook's men um and i should say i should note that it was not just sailors it was also officers um engaged in sexual relations with hawaiian women um the, Tuberculosis, the third disease, is, is um, much harder to identify when exactly it spread, but there were various men on board the ship who were infected. One officer dies from tuberculosis on the way home, and one of the ways of greeting people on the Hawaiian Islands um, was to touch noses and exchange breath. Well, that's a very um, great way to, to uh, spread tuberculosis. And sure enough, within a matter of years, uh, um, the disease is present. On the island, um, and so how did this how did these these new diseases um, uh, situate but not cause the uh, you know, the killing of Cook in the following year well, there's a lot of evidence um in in the cook journals um, that people were very upset about having caught these sexually transmitted infections uh, they were distraught they were looking for some solutions um, they say. Hawaiians tell the British in uh, no uncertain terms that uh, you gave us this disease, now fix it. Um, cooks, men record Hawaiian people, um, preparing herbal remedies and applying, applying these remedies to their genitals to try to, um, alleviate the pain and, and perhaps, uh, cure, cure the, um, the venereal disease. And there's a substantial conversation about, about these diseases between the British and, and the Hawaiians. Um, but there's also a whole lot else going on in Cook's second visit to the Hawaiian Islands in, in late 1778 in, into 1779, including, I argue, um, the, British, uh, the British sailors' defiance of Hawaiian authority, specifically their defiance... Of, of Hawaiian uh, kapus or restrictions on on uh, engaging in sex with Hawaiian women. So the British uh, are assigned to an encampment on the the Big Island of Hawaii in 1779. When they return from from the North American uh, from the Pacific Northwest, they're assigned to a specific encampment and the chiefs or ali'i um, on the Big Island. Uh, forbid them from leaving their encampment. Well, British sailors uh, and officers defy this order. Um, They seek out uh, native Hawaiian women and um, the relations between the British and, and uh, the Hawaiian chiefs on the big Island take, uh, take a negative turn as a result of this. So in the end, um, five British or five British sailors are killed, including Captain Cook and, 30 or more Hawaiians. And I, I argue that um, that British relations with Hawaiian women were a major part of this conflict and, of course, sex is a, is a major part of relations between the sailors and the women.
1: What role did the memory of Lono play in the religious-political dimensions of the devastation of the Ma'i Marihini?
0: Well, this is another contentious debate in Hawaiian history. The possibility that some Hawaiians on the Big Island may have seen Captain Cook as uh, their returning agricultural deity, Lono. Um, There was an extensive debate in the 1990s between an American anthropologist and a Sri Lankan anthropologist about this. Um, But actually, Hawaiian historians, Native Hawaiian writers and historians throughout the 19th century stated pretty flatly that, um, that people on the Big Island did see Captain Cook as a manifestation or um, the actual uh, agricultural deity Lono uh, having returned in a, in a kind of Messiah uh, way of, of returning. And it, there, there are a lot of complicated reasons for this. The season in which he arrives, the way Cook um, Cook's ships circumnavigate the islands, the sails that um, bear some resemblance to the ritual streamers of the, the Lono um Cult uh, used, and so there was a lot of a lot of uh, heated debate about whether this was a possibility that Captain Cook could be seen as um, as a god. And the term "god" is not so helpful um, once you understand Hawaiian religion a little bit better, because it doesn't translate into Western concepts very well. But in any case, um, after Cook is killed um, in the skirmish on the Big Island in 1779. A lot of people um, are ask start start to ask if the British stick stick around for a while and then uh, and then in the in the years that follow many more British come and a lot of Hawaiians on the Big Islander uh, begin asking the British when Cook Lono would return and they also more interesting to, to me they suggest that his death was somehow related to the Ma'i malihini in other words the introduced diseases that that the British uh, saddled hawaiians with um uh, stories also circulate about cook's uh, potential role in a in a a volcano eruption on the big island so it seems pretty clear to me that at least some islanders on the big island um, are associating the cook event with their own um religious traditions and especially with traditions about this agricultural deity lono what hasn't been What hasn't been explored as much and what I contribute in this chapter is their connection uh, of Cook and his men um, with the introduced diseases. And so that's what I try to explore in um, in this section of the of the chapter.
1: In the late 1780s and early 1790s, why and how did Hawaiian women relate important information about uh, the attentions to British traders? And how did the ensuing arms trade and spread of tuberculosis affect or shape relations between George Vancouver and Kamehameha?
0: Well, what happens after uh, the Cook expedition is a series of European and American um, explorers and fur traders, Pacific fur traders arrive at the islands. They're mostly stopping there uh, as a way station, gathering food and fresh water um, and uh, and then carrying on. So many of these visits are are relatively short, but the sexual exchanges that I described um, in, in the first chapter that, that began uh, immediately with the arrival of Cook, they develop into a more formal sex trade. Um, so many women and girls—there um, th- may well have been men as well—but it's not recorded because um, same-sex relations between men were a capital offense in most European navies. So they're not going to write that down. But many women and girls are um, are wrangled into, a, a, as I say, a more formal sex trade with uh, with European. Sailors, and some women um, I was surprised to find were um, eager to use European men as bargaining chips and what I mean by that is that, um, like many societies in Hawaii in in late eighteenth century Hawaii, the authority of various leaders was challenged, uh, was contested, and so Hawaiian females, uh, as I say, both women and girls were um, were canny and willing to um, try to play these newcomers off um, of their own chiefs. Um, so women, uh, again, this was a surprise to me, uh, stayed aboard European ships for weeks at a time. Um, this this occurs in the throughout the 1790s and and the early 19th century, even when europeans and americans are skirmishing having military engagements with hawaiian forces hawaiian women remain on the ships and uh, what they're doing on on the ships be, besides sex i suppose as anyone's guess there maybe could be more research here but they are um building alliances it, i i can't think of a better term than alliance what what the alliance consists of you know how far it could be stretched again we we know very little about this but Hawaiian women are spending a lot of time on on these European and American ships, um, and so I, I try to uh, I try to track these uh, these exchanges and make sense of of uh, of what what could be happening there. Um, the other thing that happens you, you asked about tuberculosis. Yeah, tuberculosis um, is um, is critical to the story of colonialism in Hawaii. It's been underestimated. Um, I argue. And uh, what it does specifically at at this moment is it um, takes the lives of two or more chiefs on the island of Maui, which enables a big island chief by the name of Kamehameha to conquer Maui. So um, I, I argue it plays a really important role. Kamehameha will then go on to conquer the entire island chain over the course of a few decades. But the conquest of Maui um, was an important first step for him and really, um, really secures his place as, 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 a, as a crucial leader. Um, George Vancouver is the second major British um, expedition, the Vancouver expedition, to deal with Hawaiians. They, sp- they make three separate trips and spend an awful lot of time there. Vancouver is less observant than Captain Cook. Um, less observant and less interested in culture and Hawaiian culture and society. What he really wants is to take Hawaii as a protectorate um, uh, and add it to the British empire. Um, so he's, uh, th- so he's focused on finding the right people to, to deal with and um, shore up support for, for his, uh, for British rule, essentially that does not happen, but um what does happen is Vancouver's men build, help uh, to Kamehameha to build a warship. They're reluctant to, to trade uh, weapons um, because uh, warfare, um, inter uh, internecine warfare has already broken out on, um, on the islands in the wake of Captain Cook. Um, but, but uh, they do give him a, they do provide a warship, which, um, Kamehameha Kamehameha will find very useful in the, in the coming decades as he's trying to conquer the remaining islands. I should, I should have noted that the Hawaiian islands, despite being a relatively small, um, kind of a postage stamp there in the middle of the Pacific, there were four separate polities, at least four, possibly five when Captain Cook arrived. So, um, Kamehameha was the first, um, Hawaiian chief to try to consolidate and, um, Essentially, create a kingdom. That's what he did uh, of all eight islands. And then one one final note here that um, it, from the Hawaiian perspective, this period, uh, besides the uh, impact of of foreign diseases and the outbreak of of warfare, I, re- I describe it as a scramble for new knowledge, technology, and diplomatic relations. That's what not not only Kamehameha, but um, other, uh, other elite Hawaiians, chiefs, but also common people are um, trying to figure out um, how to negotiate all these newcomers from all these different nations and trying to incorporate various technologies um, and trying to get di- diplomacy
1: underway. Can you explain the causes and progression of the squatting sickness that engulfed 1804 Hawaii, as well as its consequences for Kahuna practices? What were the roles of foreign physicians? Well, as Kamehameha
0: begins um, his conquest of the islands, he um, he starts with uh, with Maui, as I mentioned, and then he gets to Oahu, which is where um, Honolulu is, and he's um, so he's got three three major islands, maybe four at that point, point. and he's begun planning in around eighteen oh three for a conquest of the remaining islands, especially Kauai and Ni'ihau, which are the westernmost. Hawaiian islands, um, and are strictly independent. They're an independent polity at this time. He's been trying for, um, at least 10 years by this point to, to conquer Kauai and Ni'ihau. And so what he does is deploys about 7,000 Hawaiian soldiers, as well as 50 foreigners, um, to, um, set up on the, on the Honolulu shorefront and, um, get ready for, for a, a, a voyage up to Kauai and Ni'ihau to, to conquer those islands. Unfortunately for, for, for Kamehameha, a um, a bacterial infection breaks out among his men who are in camp. Um, we don't know whether this was um, dysentery or some kind of cholera, but it um, was we do know that it was among probably the three worst epidemics in recorded Hawaiian history. So something on the range of 5,000 to 15,000 people may have been struck down on the Island of Oahu, um, because of this sickness. Um, it was called Okuu, which means squatting sickness, which, um, points to the, um, the gastrointestinal, uh, um, d- dimension of, of the, of the illness. Um, So uh, diarrhea doesn't tend to kill people um, very, very often in the West today, but, but back then it certainly, it certainly did. And, and so the, the fatalities were, were stark, were, were striking. The other significant aspect of this disease, besides the fact that it stopped Kamehameha in his tracks, he literally turned back, went back to the big Island and the conquest of Kauai and Ni'iha was put on hold uh, specifically because of this epidemic um, but the other important aspect is that the differential effects of disease outbreak between Hawaiians and newcomers by now had become clear. So if people hadn't noticed earlier that syphilis and gonorrhea and tuberculosis seemed to be striking the Hawaiian, uh, the Islanders at a disproportionate rate to the newcomers, um, now it began to look more clear that there was a differential impact for these new and foreign diseases. Um, Foreigners were still in uh, in very small numbers, permanent residents that were um, very low numbers at this time. There were only a few hundred probably by 1804, maybe maybe less than that. But but people, but Hawaiian, the islanders did start to recognize uh, differences in effect. And so they began to think about, okay, maybe uh, our medicine needs to be reformed. Maybe our medicine needs to um, account for these new, new illnesses. Um, Some speculated, well, they're foreign illnesses. And so really what we need is foreign medicine. Uh, Western physicians need to treat these Western diseases. Um, And others argued, uh, no, that um, the kahuna order, the um, order of physicians um, simply needed to um, innovate with, with new remedies um, and preventions. And so, the documentary record on this reform effort is very thin and really needs more work, I think, by other scholars, but there is some, uh, there are some indications that um, new training began to take place um, and po- possibly new methods um, among the kahuna, the, the medical practitioners on the islands. But at the exact same time that that was happening, foreign physicians um, began to Get entangled in Hawaiian politics, and I and I think this was um, th- this is a subject that hadn't hadn't been discussed um, by other scholars, and I found it very interesting that um, any large expedition, even even a decent sized trading um, ship, would have a surgeon or some kind of medical specialist on board, and these people, um, these foreign physicians, were very quickly. Um, uh, found it very easy to get ingratiated with Hawaiian chiefs for the simple reason that Hawaiian health struggles were a central problem in Hawaiian society at this time. And so rather than just practicing medicine, um, a number of these foreign physicians uh, take on roles in the, um, in Island politics, including eventually in the kingdom itself, they become very high, um, important advisors to to elite chiefs like Kamehameha and um actually have uh some of them almost have a almost have a kind of filibuster um uh perspective or, or uh, an approach as, of a, as a filibuster in fact one german physician tries to take the island of Kauai um he's quickly kicked out um, by the the head chief there but um, so so it's um it's a indication of the importance of of health problems at this time that these foreign physicians become so important to the chiefs.
1: Now, if possible, can you briefly comment on European perceptions of cultural decline among Hawaiians during the 1810s, particularly for ali'i patterns of consumption?
0: Yeah. Um for those For those scholars and readers um, who work in Native North American history, um, many many will be familiar with the the trope of the vanishing Indian, um, especially in the 19th century, the the notion that that Native Americans were a doomed race or something along these lines, which of course um, uh, was was motivated more by um, manifest destiny and American empire than it was the facts on the ground. But in Hawaii, the fact that does matter is that the population declines precipitously and everyone can see this because it's not the plain, the North, North American plains or um, the Arctic where it might be hard to track this. It's the Hawaiian islands, which are very small islands. And it's not that difficult to, um, to uh, run a census and see that the population is declining. That is, Fact of population decline gets glossed by outsiders, Europeans and Americans, as cultural decline. In other words, that the the Hawaiian culture is somehow diseased or are um, um, doomed or deficient in some way. And um, there's uh, there's. No indication that Hawaiians feel this way. In fact, I question question the very term cultural decline. It doesn't mean anything to me. I mean, what is it? Culture changes. That's that's in the nature of culture, but what does it mean for a culture to decline? Um, Nothing, essentially. But it becomes a very important trope um, among outsiders, among among Europeans and Americans about the Hawaiian people. And they connect a number of uh, behaviors and social developments to this notion of decline. One is that Kamehameha's successor, Kamehameha does eventually um, conquer or unite the island chain. And, and this is the beginning of the Hawaiian kingdom um, in the early 1800s. He dies in 1819 and his successor, his son, Liho Liho is judged by outsiders, but also by Hawaiians as a less capable leader than his father, just simply less gifted in statecraft and less shrewd. Um, and so they so outsiders um, point to liho liho as a as a symptom of this cultural decline. They also point to the new commodities that Hawaiians begin to consume. This includes alcohol and tobacco um, among the chiefs. It includes luxury goods such as silks, um, weapons. The acquisition of weapons. Um, they point. This is outsiders again. Point to the, uh, the accumulation of debt, um, financial debt, uh, among the chiefly class. Um, some scholars have, have, um, questioned the, the reality of this debt. Uh, was it more rhetoric or was it more reality? I, I, I see, I, I believe it was reality and I believe it's a, um, a major, it plays a major role in, in the Imperial involvement in Hawaii. The fact that the chiefs take on significant debt, um, And finally, they point, the outsiders do, they point to the chief's exploitation, as they see it, of the commoners. Commoners, the the term is maka'ainana, people of the land. Um, Outsiders are quick to write about the way the chiefs exploit commoners in forced labor, um, in various um, extractive industries that that the islands begin to uh, play host to. Um, And so we a narrative arises, a transnational narrative among Europeans and Americans that the Hawaiian culture is declining, not just the population.
1: For our, You've already touched on this. For our listeners, though, please briefly narrate the 1819 nullification of the Kapu system of religious law after the death of Mo'i Kamehameha, focusing on the baptism of Chief Minister William Pitt Kalani Moku, and his brother Boki. The causes of population decline and the role of chiefesses in factionalism between the Maui chiefs and big island rebels, and then perhaps you can address what the impact was of the subsequent nullification.
0: yeah, this is a big question um
1: central question
0: yeah it is it absolutely is, and this this i I take this on in in chapter four um Kamehameha the first um uh, the first uh monarch, the first king of the united. Hawaiian islands dies in 1819. And shortly after his death, um, two, uh, two of his widows who are, um, high, very high ranked chiefs themselves. Actually, they outrank their husband. They outrank Kamehameha in Island society. They lead, um, what, what could be called a cultural revolution. And what they do is they nullify the system of religious law that had governed Hawaiian society for centuries. Um, I call it religious law it 's essentially state religion, so um, Hawaii uh, had a state religion, and uh, it had a priestly class who was uh, assigned to to run that state religion and they essentially uh, these two chiefesses Kaahumanu and Keani, they discard it they officially uh, discard it, and I argue following um the wonderful Hawaiian historian Lily Kalakameilahiva from the 1990s. I I argue as she did as she, as she did that these two chiefesses were convinced that, um, as they said, a new way was required to bring new life to the nation, and I argue that that new life, what they meant specifically, was improved health and survival. Um, the impact of uh, the Ma'i Malahini, the introduced diseases, the impact on fertility by the 1810s was um, dramatic. So um, women, uh, women uh, were struggling to, um, to bring births to um, full term. Their infant mortality was, was, was dramatic, was rising. Um, and the chiefesses at the same time that this was happening were noticing that newcomers uh, did not seem to be struggling as much. There, there weren't a lot of, of, um, European and American families at this time living on the islands, but they could identify the difference in, um, the differences in health outcomes and especially in fertility. Um, and so they, uh, they suggested that the religious laws governing the islands needed to be discarded. And in, in Ka'ahumanu's terms, this comes secondhand to us from a from a white um, observer, but um, the observation that was recorded was that uh, Hawaiians, uh, that she was going to choose to follow the lifestyle of, um, of the white people. Now she was quick to point out that um, Hawaiian, the Hawaiian people generally could continue to live however they wanted, but that um, she was going in the direction of, of white society. She wasn't specific on <laughs> yet on what this meant but what what's kind of amazing about this event on, on the Hawaiian Islands in 1819 is that there were no missionaries on the islands yet something similar this is a much bigger transnational story in the Pacific in the 1820s that the, the kapu system uh, in other places it's called the taboo uh, taboo system religious law is is jettisoned and islanders uh, take on Christianity essentially as its replacement um, replacement is too general a term uh, uh, Religious um, life in many in many islands um, for many people is essentially unchanged, but the state religion is, is jettisoned by the leadership in exchange for Christianity. This happens all over the Pacific, but in most places there are missionaries uh, in place when this happens. In most places, the nullification or the overthrow of the kapu system is led by men. In Hawaii, there are two unique aspects that um, I think have been really under appreciated the fact that there are no missionaries. So the fact that Hawaiians uh, elite Hawaiians are making this decision in, with the, in the absence of Christianity and that women are leading the charge, uh, uh, chiefesses uh, such as Ka'ahumanu and Keopuolani are leading the charge. Uh, they convince the monarch Leo Leo, um, who is Keopuolani's son. They convince him to, um, to dispense with the Kapu system and follow them, uh, into into this new life, which as of eighteen nineteen is it's unclear what that new life will be. So there are high ranking chiefs who are the kinsmen of these two chiefesses who um, also follow follow them. Um, this includes the chief minister William Pitt Kalanimoku and his brother Boki, both of whom had been baptized by a French a visiting French peace, priest the previous year. So. I said there are no missionaries. There are no missionaries settled on the islands. Uh, in fact, all there are uh, are ship's priests like, like this gentleman. So, there, so I point this out just because uh, there were some precedents for, um, for the action of, of, of these two chiefesses, um, but nullification of the Kapu system was not, um, was not tied in their minds as far as we can tell to the acceptance of Christianity. This act, the nullification of of religious law across the islands, um, sparked a rebellion by traditionalists on the Big Island. And that uh, rebellion is quickly put down by Kalani Moku, the chief minister uh, in the kingdom. Um, And essentially, there is a short period where um, anarchy is the wrong term. um, But a lot of Hawaiians are quoted by visitors as saying um, you know the, the the old gods have been destroyed, and the, um, there there is no law at the moment um, and I, again I think that's that 's an overstatement, but there is this in between period where it 's unclear what what kind of of society Hawaii will be, what the role of the chiefs will be, and the impact of this of this uh, nullification of the Kapu system it 's really hard to overestimate because Shortly, American missionaries do arrive and they find the ground, as they say, uh, primed for um, possible Hawaiian conversion to Christianity, um, which ultimately does happen. But before conversion happens um, on a broad scale, what happens is a political alliance between the chiefs and the American missionaries. And uh, I'm not the only person to argue that the, the nullification of the Kapu system did, did sort of prepare the ground for that
1: alliance to occur. So let's talk about the missionary program. How and why did proponents of the British New England missionary programs such as William Ellis and his Tahitian assistants, especially given the deaths of Alei in Hawaii and London, convince Kahumanu and island chiefs to support a missionary presence in Hawaii? Was there any dissidence against the Sandwich Islands missions? Right there, um, I mentioned the
0: American missionaries who come from New England. They're <clears throat> excuse me, they're mostly Congregationalists, Presbyterians. Um, it's an interdenominational missionary program. This is the this is, I think, the largest missionary program in the U.S. at the time. It's called the American Board of Commissioners for Foreign Missions, and they are all over the world. They come in 1820. They have two young men, young Hawaiian men, with them. These men had been. Uh, educated in, uh, at the foreign mission school in Connecticut. Uh, they had been Christianized as far as we can tell. Um, and they serve as, um, uh, as kind of intermediary inter- intermediaries to, um, to the mission. They introduce the missionaries to the Hawaiian chiefs and, um, and, uh, um, and and make their their program, uh, or, or I should say, make their presence more accept- more acceptable at the start. The um, the Hawaiian monarchs, uh, including Kaahumanu, Liholiho, liho, 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 excuse me, give the missionaries leave to stay on the island for one year, um, and they have only one condition for that leave to stay, which is that the physician who came with the missionaries would be would become. Liholio's personal physician. So the Hawaiian monarch gets um, to have this man as his personal physician and um, they're, the, the ali'i are going to give them a test and see what these missionaries are all about. I should point out that they seem the missionaries seem less threatening because they, they arrive with uh, wives and children. Um, I say wives because women could not be missionaries in the ABC FM. So it's just the men who are missionaries and they bring their wives They bring their children and they're unarmed. So they don't seem like a threat uh, to the chiefs at the start. Pretty shortly after they arrive, I believe the year is 1822, um, a British missionary organization um, arrives on the islands from Tahiti. So from the Society Islands in the South Pacific. And uh, they... Uh, they have with them that there are three, I believe three British missionaries from the London missionary society, and they bring with them Tahitian assistants. And these people are um, these Tahitians are, are missionaries themselves. Uh, so there are, there are two men, each of whom uh, is accompanied by, by his wife. Um, other Tahitians had uh, made their way up to the Hawaiian islands uh, by this point And s- were serving as advisors to the Hawaiian chiefs and, um, some of these Tahitians, if not all of them, had become Christians um, because of the work of the London Missionary Society. So um, there hasn't been much attention paid to these Tahitian missionaries um, who arrived in 1822, very little attention actually. But I argue that um, they had a profound impact on the Hawaiian chiefs in terms of making Protestant Christianity, uh, and the missionary program, which was a, which was a, a total program of, uh, social change, really. Um, maybe we'll get into some of the expectations that, uh, Protestants brought to Hawaii in terms of how Hawaiians should live, but that the Tahitians made the Protestant program more palatable and possibly, there's not a lot of evidence of this, but I I looked hard for it, um, possibly convinced them of the um, health and reproductive benefits of Christianity. Hawaiians will decide on their own, um, uh, independent of Tahitians, that Christianity, or I should say New England Protestantism, has health and reproductive benefits because uh, the missionaries have enormous families, enormous relative to today. They have Um, you know, 10, 12, 14 children, where many Hawaiians are struggling to have any. And so they, so Hawaiians pretty quickly see uh, what they, what they imagine are health benefits of of the Protestant lifestyle, um, which also makes, makes the the movement uh, more palatable. Um, In terms of Resistance and uh, so let me just finish the, to, on, on the note that Ka'ahumanu becomes um, the the high chiefess. Ka'ahumanu becomes a leading um, proponent of the Protestants over over the course of the eighteen uh, really late eighteen twenties, early eighteen thirties, and really makes their presence um, allows their presence to become more permanent. Um, allows these missionaries to become a more permanent presence on the island. There were there was dissidence. Um, in particular, the Pelé movement, um, um, which was centered on the big island. Pelé was a, um, is a, um, volcano goddess and, um, a number of local prophets sprung up, um, suggesting that Pelé was unhappy with the arrival of the missionaries on, un- un- unhappy with the Protestant uh, mission. Um, and the, um, and, and essentially arguing for, a, um, a, a traditional Hawaiian religious uh, revitalization and removal of the the foreign missionaries, but the the uh, Protestant chiefs I, that, it, I I'm not satisfied with that term Protestant chiefs, but ultimately a lot of the chiefs do um, join forces with the Protestant mission and uh, and um, join the Protestant church. Uh, these people, led by Kaahumanu, ultimately win the battle for hearts and minds among elite Hawaiians. And encourage the Hawaiian people to to follow their lead and uh, join the Protestant Church.
1: What was the Great Fatalism, and what does it have to do with the decision of, of decision of Mini Ali'i to join American Protestants and advocate for Christianity among the people?
0: Well, there's been a lot of scholarship on uh, foreigners' uh, views on uh, the fate of Native people, especially in the 19th century. And how those might have affected Indigenous people's own ideas, but when I came to this project, I was really struck that no one had really wondered whether Indigenous attitudes about their um, about their their lives and their futures had any effect on foreign impressions or attitudes about about that. Um, and so, what I discovered um, reading closely in the in the documents and especially Hawaiian language documents for this. This section was that in the wake of the um, in the wake of the nullification of the kapu system, the arrival of American and British missionaries, um, and the continuing health struggles uh, unabated among Hawaiian people, elite and commoner, that there was a pervading mood of despair and actually of hopelessness among both ali'i and makaainana, among both elite and common Hawaiians about the prospects for a Hawaiian future. Um, This is particularly pronounced in the 1830s, um, and it's just all through the documents. Some scholars have treated this as just um, essentially missionary brainwashing, that, oh, Hawaiian people were being indoctrinated and taught to uh, believe that they were a doomed race. But actually, I see it as almost the opposite, that this... This Hawaiian fatalism is is um sui generis. It's it's on the local level, it's coming from the people, and missionaries and other foreigners are um are echoing it. They're simply echoing it. Um and this fatalism, I argue, um was the most important uh development that, that drove Hawaiians into the arms of the American Protestant mission. Um Other historians have referred to this moment in Hawaiian history as the Hawaiian Great Awakening, um, sort sort of as riffing off the American uh, the two two American Great Awakenings in the eighteenth and nineteenth century. But I um, I suppose sort of cheekily suggest that um, we should think of it more as the Great Fatalism because it was a, a mood of despair and hopelessness that that, um, that drove Hawaiians into the, uh, into the Protestant camp, um, as opposed to a, um, a flurry of, uh, spiritual and, uh, revivalist activity. There is documented revivalist activity, um, on the big Island and Maui, but it's very short lived. It's, um, it's very localized and it's temporary. People are um, Hawaiians in in huge numbers. Leave the Protestant Church; they they turn to the Catholic Church. Once Catholic priests are allowed on the islands, they become Mormons. They go back to Protestantism. They, um, as as is true everywhere in indigenous society, they continue to practice their own indigenous religion and rituals. Um so the so called great awakening i um i don't dispute that that there was that there were revivals and that there was increased church membership, but I see the the great fatalism as a much more um, pronounced and um, and um, an influential um, development um i I should add that um the elite especially were very canny in their acceptance of christianity and more than a few told visitors that, um, they were only Christians so long as, as Christianity delivered for the people. And one of the things they, they meant, um, perhaps a central thing they meant when they said delivered was that it was going to make their society thrive. It was going to make Hawaiian people more healthy. Um, and it was going to, uh, improve conditions for the Hawaiian future. So, um, I, there's, a, I found a, a really wonderful conversation between, uh, um a chiefess and a visiting, I believe it was a German delegation, who said, um, yeah, their Protestantism, that was fine for now, but um they were only gonna uh, adhere to it as long as it worked. Um uh, and then finally, just on this great fatalism, an important part of it, um, I argue, a pr- important part of this mood uh, that pervades Hawaiian society at this time is concerns over fertility, declining fertility, and the loss of family members. So I, virtually every, um, uh, every Hawaiian document um, I, 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 I scanned uh, from this period in the 1830s, um, people are mentioning uh, the struggles to, uh, cr- to build families and the loss of, um, of their own family members. And so I, I argue that this really does feed into this mood of, of fatalism.
1: After establishment of the 1840 constitutional monarchy, how and why did gender, health, and mortality concerns intersect with the need to naturalize foreigners, this Haole expansion of commercial agriculture, the Cheats' desire to preserve land, as well as the attempted regulation of sexual activities? I guess in the final analysis, who ultimately coordinated the Mahele privatization of crown lands and why?
0: Yeah, that's a good question. That's a big one. Um, I'll, I'll try to be brief on this. The Mahele was the, um, privatization of lands across the islands that had been held of officially and formally by the monarchy. Uh, this occurs in the late 1840s and early 1850s. And it has, um, major consequences, um, really across Hawaiian society, um, it allows foreigners to buy, to purchase land outright, to own it outright, as opposed to a, a kind of lease arrangement or a temporary um, usage of the land with formal ownership being by the monarchy. So it allows that. It also sort of breaks the traditional bond between the Ali'i and Maka'ainana, between uh, the chiefs and the commoners, because um, whether, whether people... Uh, whether one sees the relationship as exploitative, inherently exploitative or not, there was a system of tribute and there was a dependence, um, going both ways between these, these classes and the Mahele essentially breaks that by making land private. Um, it had three immediate causes that the Mahele did. Um, I argue, and I think I'm, i following, I know that I'm following other scholars in this, um, it, the naturalization of foreigners, this was important because foreigners, not just missionaries, began to arrive and settle in much greater numbers in the 1840s. We're still talking about um, thousands of people, uh, low thousands rather than tens of thousands. But, but they became a problem, um, especially as they agitated for private property and political representation. So the kingdom felt the need to naturalize these people, in other words, make them subjects of the kingdom in order to control them. Um, in order to prevent uh, filibustering and imperial ambitions in these people, so that was one motivation. Um, uh, giving them giving them a stake in Hawaiian society essentially by giving them uh, allowing them to to buy property and have a have a voice in, in the government. Um, it was secondly a concession to lay or foreign demands for fr- private property. It won't surprise listeners to hear that um, Americans and uh, and British and other Europeans. Uh, cared deeply about private property and believed it to be their inherent right, and had been for decades now making demands um, uh, in, in, in published accounts back home, but also to the to the monarchy itself that they needed private property in order to remain on the islands and and um, feel in, 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 in full feel that their rights uh, were being recognized in full. And then finally, uh, and perhaps most importantly, the chiefs at this point, the 1840s um, were very worried about imperial ambitions of uh, European, uh, the European uh, and American empires. And um, it's more or less the 1840s, a constant worry uh, that some foreign power, some foreign empire is going to, is going to take the Hawaiian islands by, by force. Um, And that, and that if that were to happen, the chiefs would uh, lose everything because the chiefs' wealth, traditionally and in the 1840s, was essentially land wealth. And if the islands were conquered, annexed, uh, taken in, in some other kind of agreement, the chiefs would lose everything. And so, in order to head that off, the chiefs saw land privatization as a possible solution. In other words, if they held their, if they held lands individually, privately. Um, they would not lose everything in if the worst uh, happened. In other words, uh, conquest or annexation. Um, uh, the the islands at least once uh, there were French, British, and American attempts to take the islands um, in, in various ways during the 1840s. And at least once, the British do take the islands officially um, on paper, um, but the British uh, the British monarchy uh, doesn't accept the. Action of its of its um, of its uh, I don't even I don't even recall if he's a delegate, um, and they give the islands back. But uh, as I say, it's a constant concern of of the monarchy and um, the the Hawaiian diplomats actually carry documents of annexation in case when they're visiting a foreign country or they're out at sea in case. Something would happen that would require them to sign the islands over as a protectorate or something. So it's um, it's hard to underestimate that that uh, aspect of of their motivation. The mastermind uh, of this plan of land privatization it was an American uh, lawyer uh, who becomes a judge on the islands. Uh, his name's William Little Lee. Um, surprisingly, um, he Lee later defended Hawaiian sovereignty by. Adding a poison pill to a U.S. treaty of annexation, the U.S. tries to annex Hawaii multiple times over the course of the second half of the 19th century. And um, the way Lee does this um, is that he uh, requires that Hawaiians would become um, full citizens if if annexation were to happen, if the U.S. were to annex Hawaii, is that uh, that Hawaiians there was a, he added a clause that would require them to become full citizens. He knew that um racist American legislators would never go for this, and in fact they didn't and so they they rejected the treaty on this basis so as a figure in um in in this sort of imperial moment in Hawaiian history, William little Lee has a mixed legacy i think he he engineers the privatization of lands which has um incredible implica- uh, consequences for the Hawaiian people, but he also defends their, their sovereignty in that in that small way. The outcome of the Mahele is that um, the commoners, Hawaiian commoners, who make up probably 95% of the population in the 1840s, end up with about 1% of the land. The rest goes to uh, kingdom officials, um, the monarchy, um, and uh, white newcomers. Um and shortly after this, plantations—well, even simultaneously—plantations have have been uh, uh, begun, and um, you're, we're going to see a very, a very different um, island society going forward. I'll just finally end on on this point, on this question that three epidemics strike the islands simultaneously with the mahihei, with the privatization of lands, um, and this this really does not help the case against privatization, which many Hawaiians are making. They're they're writing um, entreaties to the monarchy saying, please don't let foreigners buy up our lands. It's going to be the death of us. Um, They're going to run us off our our ancestral lands. Um, We can't survive without without our land. Um, The fact that uh, Hawaii loses so many people at the very same time really doesn't help their case, because what happens is there's a perception on the part of the kingdom that um, agricultural production is down, um, that lands are laying fallow because tens of thousands of Hawaiians have died in the late 1840s as a result of these epidemics. So the case for privatization of lands and especially foreign ownership and development of lands becomes more attractive to the kingdom as a result of ongoing Hawaiian
1: health struggles. So do these epidemics and other epidemics in uh, the late 1840s and 1850s uh, facilitate the importation of Chinese and immigrant labor into the burgeoning Hawaiian plantation complex? And why during this importation did US physicians advocate for Hawaiian intermarriage? Did their reasons adumbrate later Hawaiian immigration policy?
0: Absolutely. They did. Um, uh, in addition to the privatization of lands, the, um, the enormous co- costs and human life of the 1840s epidemics, um, the, the California gold rush, um, begins in the 18, in the late 1840s. And one of the, um, it, the, the gold rush is seen as an opportunity by the monarchy to supply gold miners and the enormous, um, influx of, of, uh, people to California with produce, with agricultural produce. So this is another um, important pressure that the monarchy is feeling in terms of um, expanding Hawaiian agriculture and their perception um, in part, in part, uh, based on fact is that the population is declining. It is, it is declining. Let me just state it. The pop- overall population is declining. and. They're looking for uh, labor. They're looking for people who can um, work the lands in order to supply California and, and a broader uh, Pacific trade with, with um, agricultural produce. Um, that story has been told broadly and for decades, all the way back to the, I'd say, 1930s. People have written about um, the, the um, land reform and the way the monarchy is thinking about um, Opening up lands for for private um, enterprise. What has not been discussed, and what, what I spend a lot of time thinking about in this final chapter of the book, is the way the monarchy um, is also thinking about, in their own terms, saving the Hawaiian race. In other words, they're looking for um, the, the term they often use is cognate races. They're looking for people, whether Polynesians, other Pacific Islanders, who could not only supply agricultural labor for, for Hawaiian society, but intermarry with Hawaiians. Um, and that's essentially what they do. They, they go uh, on tours of the Pacific looking for um, Pacific Islanders uh, and it, uh, they eventually make it to, to East Asia who could come and serve as a cheap labor force and be encouraged to stay and intermarry with Hawaiian women um, to bolster the population. Um, this serves multiple purposes, uh, a greater population means a greater labor force, of course, but they also, uh, the, the, monarchs and, and, uh, and appointees both white and Hawaiian in the monarchy talk explicitly about bolstering the population through reproduction through essentially mixed marriages. And so, um, after looking around the Pacific, um, the monarchy, uh, decides that um, um, Asian labor uh, would be a a good option. And so the first Chinese contract laborers arrive um, uh, in 1852, um, about 300 of them. Um, And um, many do in fact stay and start families with Hawaiian women. Um, And so that, uh, that moment is pretty decisive in terms of the way the monarchy is thinking about, um, Hawaiian society and the Hawaiian future. There will be as, as, as scholars of the 20th century, 20th century Hawaii know there will be one group after another who serves as a labor force in Hawaii, uh, Chinese, Korean, Portuguese. Um, and many of those people stay and, and marry into Hawaiian families. Um, uh, I, I discuss also a, a US physician named Luther Gulick who was a son of one of the New England Protestant missionaries to Hawaii um because he writes extensively um about labor policy and uh contract labor in a um in a medical journal um the um and and the way he's thinking uh, of, about that program is uh, uh is uh, essentially he believes that this is the uh, the best bet to save the Hawaiian race from extinction is the term he uses, and he also um, believes that imported uh, mixed marriages, um, so it, imported laborers who marry uh, with Hawaiian women, would raise the racial stock, as he calls it, of island society. So there's a you know clearly a racialist um, motivation and thinking that's 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 happening here. But what I was surprised about is that when I when I read the sources, the documents was that the monarchy also seemed to believe that um, that depopulation would not, could not be halted um, and would not be halted unless they imported people to bolster it. Um, and so that ultimately is the is the plan going forward. This has typically been this plan has typically been um, portrayed by, by by scholars as American business interests, especially sugar planters. Just looking for cheap labor and landing on Chinese, and then moving on to Portuguese and Japanese and, and the rest. And that's not untrue. But it's also the case that the Hawaiian monarchy was deeply concerned about depopulation and believed that um, that that it, that the survival of the Hawaiian people would require um, importation of new people to marry in. Um, I'll I'll just finally note that. Um, the article by this physician is is interesting in the context of U.S. empire because um, a lot of the article is focused on what Hawaii could provide to the United States. And so he's publishing in the 1850s. Um, the, the coup and annexation doesn't happen until uh, the uh, 1890s. So this is almost 40 years before. And he's thinking about all of the tropical agricultural productions that Hawaii could supply to the U.S. At the same time that he's thinking about um, saving the Hawaiian race and and in, in improving the racial stock in his term. So yeah, I do see him, this physician, as prophetic, um, given the immigration patterns that played out in the later 19th century and and really through the first half of the 20th century in Hawaii and also uh, prophetic in the role of U.S. empire in shaping the islands.
1: Thank you, Professor Archer. I have one final question. What can we expect from you next? Uh, Are you going on vacation, or is there any future projects that you can disclose at this time?
0: I can't commit to any, but um, I, I I do have two projects in the conceptual phase, and so I'll just share those briefly with you. I haven't had a chance to do research on either of them, but... I'm excited, uh, I'm eager to. The first um, would be moving back to North America and thinking about the role of hunger and nutrition in shaping Native North America over the long term. Um, so I, I I come to this project with um, really just a hypothesis, which is that um, scholars um, and um, Native communities um, often uh, portray their uh, foodways before colonialism as relatively uh, stable and reliable natural resources, as being um, used efficiently, and um, and of course there's uh, there's abundant evidence that um, Native peoples across the Americas had um, had incredible resourcefulness and incredible resources that they um, knew how to use, but. I think there's a tendency to overstate the reliability of natural resources, the predictability of things like climate and other sort of day-to-day impacts on sustenance and nutrition. This is before colonial incursions happen. So I'm interested in maybe exploring, you know, in what ways was um, hunger and nutrition, what ways were they um, constant concerns and in what ways did they shape native life? So in what ways did they lead to migration, um, seeking out new trade works, uh, trade networks, um, uh, leading to raids or conflict with other native peoples in the hundreds of years, a couple hundreds of years before the arrival of Europeans. And then on the, on the flip side of it, on the colonial side, I also wonder if there's not a tendency to underestimate the impact of colonial incursions on native subsistence, including agriculture, hunting and fishing, gathering and uh, the seasonal round. So, I feel like the for the colonial period, the historiography on Native North America is, is pretty good on on uh, colonial incursions like warfare, enslavement, certainly land expropriation, but it's much less developed on native struggles to sustain healthy communities and hunger and nutrition uh, are central to that question. Um, finally, on on this on this point, it uh, it doesn't take much reading in the literature on. Um, 19th century, 18th and 19th century native religious revitalization movements to see that hunger was central to many of them. So the ghost dance, the sun dance, we see in the oral traditions and in the documentary record, um, many references to the role of hunger um, in leading to these these movements. And so I think it's not just a question of nutrition, it's also a, a broader question of Culture, And so I imagine that study, if, if it were to be done, I imagine it being um, on a broad canvas chronologically and, and also regionally, mostly just because this first book was so specific to a time and place, I'd like to do some more comparative work. The second idea I have for a project um, is about, it's also about native health, imagine that, all, all three of these, but it's about native health and Indian removal. So this would include the ways that um, North American empires, not just the U S but other empires in North America deployed indigenous health struggles as a justification for ethnic cleansing. Um, But beyond just the rhetoric and and politics, I'm also interested in the kinds of data that may have been collected in native communities. For instance, I'm thinking data in the broadest sense by physicians uh, by native medicine people or health workers and other informants. So what kinds of information were um, European and American and American empires, uh, the administration of Andrew Jackson say what kinds of information were they collecting about Native health and the impact of contact with white settlers, and then what ways in what ways did they use that to justify ethnic cleansing essentially? Removal advocates made frequent re- reference to Native depopulation, population loss. And the opportunity that Natives would have, the so-called opportunity that Natives would have to flourish and recoup their numbers if only they could be removed from white settlers. And of course, that's a pretty transparent ploy um, or a smokescreen for genocide, really. But I'm curious how imperial agents' understanding of Native health and population played into these removal proposals. And I'm interested in how Native people themselves thought about the health of their communities and their well-being in their homelands, as opposed to in Indian territory or on reservations. There were obviously Native folks who um, agreed, at least on some level, that one of their major problems was contact with white settlers. And they also talk about health as being um, an aspect of that. So I'm interested in exploring that uh, a little bit more.
1: All right. Thank you, Professor Archer, for joining us today.
0: Thank you. It's been very, it's been really
1: wonderful. Uh, this is Ryan Tripp on behalf of Professor Archer, as well as the Native American S- Studies Channel at the New Brooks Network, signing off for today. Thanks for joining us.